What is it that gives you comfort? Who is it that brings comfort in a way that nothing else or nobody else can? Do you run to the Father? Fall into grace. Go on and have a seat. I remember back in college, I uh, played soccer for a small college in Tennessee. And, and I remember we had a guy on our team, Josh, who was just incredibly good looking from behind. And I, I say that because we could have been identical twins from behind. That seriously, especially if we were on the other side of the field, you could not tell who was who is what I'm told. And so Josh and I occasionally would get mistaken. And anyway, we're, we're getting ready for a game and I'm sitting over on the bench and this is a small college. So the fans set were right behind the team. You know, there, were, there weren't any barriers. There wasn't security that you had to come across or anything. That fans had direct access. And I'll, I'll never forget as I was sitting there on the bench trying to get my head in the game, all of the sudden, it was as if a giant hand came out of the sky and landed on my shoulder and started giving me a back rub. I was like, this is nice. You know, normally they do this with the starters, not me. But, but it became clear to me quickly that I have no idea whose mammoth hairy hand is rubbing my shoulders. And so I, I turn around, I turn around to see whose face is connected to this hand and I do not recognize this face at all. I have no clue who this guy is. Just to clarify, this is the only time in my life that a strange man has given me a back rub and I hope it stays that way. <laughs> that I had no clue who this guy was and I could tell by the reaction on his face he had no clue who I was. You talk about an awkward moment. <laughs> well, it, it ended up, it was, it, it was Josh's dad that from behind, he thought I was Josh. And so he was coming to, you know, mess with his son and it wasn't a son, right? When I turned around, I, I didn't jump up and give him a big hug. I'm, I, I have kept my distance. You know, now Josh, when he saw me, gave him a big hug, big squeeze. You know, it's difficult to embrace someone you don't know. It's difficult to embrace someone you don't know. It's difficult to embrace the Father if you don't know Him. It's difficult to embrace His Word if you don't know Him. It's difficult to embrace His ways if you don't know Him. So, do you run to the Father? Do you know? It's amazing to me how in life, two people can look at the exact same thing and see something completely different. It's amazing the difference perspective can make. There's going to be a bunch of jumbled letters here together that I wanna know, what is it that you first see? Do you first see God is nowhere? Raise your hand if that's what you first read. All right, and then the others, you probably saw God is now here. All right, now I'm one of the sinners, I gotta confess, I saw God is nowhere, right? When we look at life and pain and tragedy, you know, research shows again and again that when pain and tragedy disaster strike, that the response is, 
can be totally different, two opposite ends of the spectrum. That when you think about your walk with Christ, when is it that you've grown the most? When is it the times that, that you've really developed in your faith and your walk with him? It's been in hard times where you've grown the most, right? That's what research says. Most people will say the hard times, the painful times is where God grew them the most in their faith. But then others are on the other end of the spectrum and that they walked away from their faith, stopped believing, believing because of pain, because of suffering. How is it that we can have two totally different responses? That when we have pain, we ask, where are you, God? Why aren't you doing something about this? And let's be honest, some of us are there this morning, that right now we're thinking, where are you, God? Why aren't you doing something? And if we were honest, we would even admit that we're angry. We're upset. We're hurt. We think, God, are you mad at me? What have I done to deserve this? When we go through bad times, that's, that's often what we think is, what have I done to deserve this? That's how the people in Jesus' day thought. That's how they felt. And in Luke 13, verse one, we read, there were some present at that very time who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Just a quick pause, all right? Pilate was a governor for Rome, all right? And Pilate had ordered the slaughter, the massacre of innocent people, Jews who were worshiping God, who were offering sacrifices. Pilate had ordered for them to be killed. That's what they're talking about. And so they're looking for, how is Jesus going to respond to this? Is it a trap? Is he going to say, oh, Pilate overstepped his bounds and showing no regard for our worship? Or is he going to condemn the Cal Galileans and, not, and the people revolt? It says, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? You see, it's the, the law of retribution that they thought you get what you deserve. And Jesus asks or answers with a question to reveal intent, but let's read on. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. The tower in Siloam was probably associated, commentators believe, with ceremonial washing and that they uh, were worshipers uh, of God and that the tower fell accidentally and killed 18 of them. He says, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, the question we all ask or think is when tragedy strikes, when disaster happens is why is it deserved? What have we done to deserve this? Where is God? The question that has been wrestled for centuries and centuries is why do bad things happen to good people, right? They were offering sacrifices. They were worshiping God. Why did something so tragic happen to them? Why do bad things happen to good people. 
I really can't answer that in a way that's satisfactory. And, and I, I wanna, wanna say right now from the get-go, before I go any farther, that I know we have brothers and sisters here that are, that are in a storm, that it's chaos all around you. And I wanna say, please do not think I'm minimalizing your pain, that I'm just trivializing it and pushing it on the rug. How I would have a conversation with you in person is different than right now. Right now, we are, are, are looking at what the word says as a biblical, try to have a holistic approach to pain and suffering in our view and response to it that why do bad things happen to good people? That first of all, you've got objective and subjective. So many people will allow pain and suffering to, to discredit and say, well, there can't be a God because look at this, bad things happen to good people. All right. And what the problem is that though is, well, one, how do you get this objective truth if we're just uh, the result of evolution survival of the fittest that all of a sudden we just develop the sense of morality that that everyone subscribes to well it's you see there's subjective truth at the same time of how would we know what a crooked line is unless we have the concept of a straight line where does that come from you see that that the the trouble of pain and suffering doesn't disprove god it doesn't necessarily prove him but our rationale to get there will will, will give evidence for God. I, I don't know if I'm making sense with that. Let me try it this way. How do we know good? How do you know if someone's a good person? It's subjective, right? Objective, there's one truth. Subjective, it, it, it's open to interpretation, all right? Well, Hitler, he, he thought he was doing good for his people. Was he? No, we would all say it. that's a moral absolute, absolute evil, right? It's because we have this, the creator's given us a sense of morality that, that when you look at a praying mantis in nature, they're crazy trippy animals, did you, or bugs. Did you know that praying mantis after the male and female bait, mate, you know what happens next? <laughs> yeah, she bites his head off. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's like, there are so many jokes I want to make right now. We're moving on. Uh, that, that, you know, why is that okay? Well, well, well you know, obviously we're, we're more than bugs. Obviously we're different, but, but, but how do we know if someone's good? I want you to think of the best person you know. I mean, a person that you, you, you know is just, man, they, if anyone's good, they're good, you know? I, I'm a smart man. I'm gonna say my wife, Megan. All right, now, if you know her, she truly is. She truly is thoughtful, caring, um, just uh, amazing. Kindest person you'll ever meet. That, that if Megan is on the good scale, good or bad, she's gonna be, I'm gonna use her for the mountaintop on my scale. She's Mount Everest, okay? She's as high as it goes. That is Mount, you got that person in mind who you think, man, they are just the sweetest, kindest, best person ever? All right, they're on the mountaintop. Now on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the deepest mind shaft you can imagine. And that's where, do you think of the, the most dirty, rotten scoundrel, the scumbag, someone who you just struggle with, who is selfish all the time, who you really think, you know, they're, they're probably just garbage wrapped in skin because that's the way they treat everyone. You know, that, that person down in a mind shaft, right? You know? All right, so we've got the mountaintop and we've got the mine shaft. 
good and bad, where, where do they come in comparison to reaching to the stars? It doesn't matter if you're the mountaintop or you're the mine shaft. Neither one reached the stars. They're both in the same boat of missing it, right? Well, that, that's us in comparison to God. When we look at his goodness, his glory, his greatness, that Romans 3.23 says, you know, there, there's no, no one righteous. None of us are righteous. That, that all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. That in comparison to God, it doesn't matter where we are on the scale, the mountaintop or the mine shaft, we all are in this same boat of we all fall short of the glory of God. Man, I know this isn't gonna be the most popular sermon. I know you are not glad right now that you came to church to hear how bad you are. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, the easy text, you know, they give to Pastor Justin. He gets to, tell, you know, rock the house, knock it out of the park, you know. I get, you're all bad. <laughs> I know it's maybe not positive and uplifting, but this is the reality of our sin. You see, why do bad things happen? It, it's because because of poor choices, poor choices that we've made, poor choices that others have made. And that have hurt us, that it all comes from living in a fallen world. You see, if we go back in scripture to the garden, Genesis one, where God created everything, it was perfect. It was beautiful. It was the way things were meant to be. Creation was perfect. Adam and Eve's relationship with each other was perfect. Their relationship with God was perfect. It was truly paradise. But you remember what happened. That Adam and Eve didn't trust God. They, they wanted their eyes to be open like him and they got what they wanted, but they found out that what they wanted wasn't what they really wanted. That when they ate from the tree they were not supposed to. Sin entered the world. All of a sudden, they saw shame. They didn't see themselves right. They, they saw conflict. They saw pain. They saw destruction. They saw death. All of this creation, all of creation was subjected to the curse because of sin. You see, that's not what God originally intended. And God hasn't abandoned his plan. That if you remember, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden so they wouldn't eat from the tree of life. Now, why did he do that? Perhaps that was the greatest act of love in that he knew that this isn't what we were built for. That we were built for more. We were built for life with him in paradise. And so that one day we have the hope that one day we know we are going to be given new heavenly bodies, that we are going to see the curse reversed and that everything will be done away with. That's the old order, that's sin, that's death, that's destruction, that's pain. All of that will be done away and that creation longs for the glory that's going to be revealed when the sons of God are revealed. But here we are. Why? Do we go through these broken times, these hard times? It's because we, 
we live in a broken world and we get this backwards, we begin thinking this is what we were made for. We begin thinking this is where we want to stay, that this is all there is. And when we lose the perspective, we lose perspective on what God is doing. We get it backwards and start to think that it's all about us. C.S. Lewis, brilliant mind, said... The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. We were not made primarily that we may love God, but that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well-pleased. Do you get what Lewis is saying here? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that to remove bad would remove power of choice and that to remove the choice is to remove freedom. And to remove freedom, you're, you're ultimately, you're removing love. That man is created to be loved by God. That we are not the centerpiece of everything. That we are not the center. God is the center. And that it's his story. But yet, we sometimes make decisions that are outside of our realm about him, about what he's doing based on our perspective. It's like, this is the biggest book I own, okay? I, I want you to imagine it's even bigger, all right? The, this book is going to represent the interactings of God in human history. Everything God has done said. Now, this book has several columns, six columns. And I'm just going to pull this out it's page 1029, column three. You're going to have to trust me on it. Um, I'm just going to go to the th uh, third paragraph, second. If we give away all we have, okay, that's it. Man, this book stinks. That's, that's ludicrous, right? You don't read and judge a book based off one little phrase. I didn't even read the whole sentence, right? But yet that's our limited perspective and we try to make judgments based on things we, we don't know. I, I like how someone said, you know, if God were the ocean and, and I'm a water bottle and I go scoop up some of the ocean into this water bottle and I think that because I can understand what's in this water bottle, I can understand everything about God or the ocean. That's crazy, right? That, that is ridiculous. But yet, that's how we think sometimes. That why does God allow pain? I, I'll be honest. I don't know. I don't have maybe the, the answers that would satisfy our questions. I, I know this, though. I know we're not the first ones to go through pain and suffering. That if we go to one of the oldest books in the Bible, Job, you go back to Job in the Old Testament. Do you remember? Job was a righteous man. And yet Job suffered. We have the expression, the patience of Job. You remember there's this whole conversation that Job probably wasn't even aware of between God and Satan. Satan is making the accusation that, that Job just worships God because Job's got the perfect life. And so does God inflict pain on Job? No, it's Satan. Satan takes his everything, his possessions, 
all of it. He takes his children, even his own health. And yet Job remained faithful to God. Job's friends try to comfort him. And they're like, come on, Job. You know you're getting what you deserve. What's the deal, Job? You've done something to deserve this. And Job is just crying out for God for answers. And God, after 30, almost 40 chapters, shatters the silence. And does God tell Job why? No, Job probably even has no idea about Satan's accusation. Instead, God gives Job more questions. Where were you, Job, when the foundations of the earth were laid? Surely, you know, I mean, you look at our creation, right? You look at earth and our solar system and revolving around the sun and the rotation, how, how perfect everything has to be that we're not uh, off course or we get too close to the sun or we, you know, we melt, we burn up or we get too far from the sun and, and we freeze. That it all, you know, if, we had, if God had a control room that we could see everything he controls, <gasps> it'd blow us away. It'd blow us away. Jesus didn't answer the questions they were asking. But rather, he said, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will perish. You see, we get all these earthly dilemmas. Sin is an earthly dilemma that, we, that, that longs and requires a, a heavenly solution that we get short-sighted and want to make sense out of every little detail. And Jesus brings it back and says, no, you know, he plays the long game. That, that unless you repent, you're going to perish. What good is it to have every answer to every question if you're going to perish? They were missing what God was doing right there, that Jesus was going to be the way. They were missing it. They were worrying about destruction and tragedies and it, it happens. It wasn't that it was deserved. It's part of living in a fallen world. I don't know why. I don't know why bad things happen. I can't answer that for you, but I can suggest that that's the wrong question. Recently, I was going through a difficult time and I was lamenting to my friend, just, you know, having a, a pity party and saying, you know, why, why? Things weren't going the way I thought they should be. And he gave me the best advice. He said, why is what we want? Why is what our body wants? What we want to make sense out of. But perhaps the question you should ask is what? What is God trying to show what is God wanting me to see? What is God allowing to bring him glory in my life here? You know, God does not always remove our suffering, but God can always redeem our suffering. God does not always remove our suffering, but God can always redeem our suffering. I mean, he, he can bring purpose to our pain. Only God can do that. Only God can bring a joy, a hope that endures, long suffers, that has patience, that waits for something that we know is greater, that doesn't even compare to what we're facing now. Chip Ingram, in his study of the real God, 
Hey guys, our, our men's ministry, Thursday nights studying, just started this. Men, you need to get involved with our men's ministry. They've got to study Monday night. Yesterday, on Saturday, we had men's breakfast. Guys, you need to be a part of the men's ministry. Young, old, married, single, it doesn't matter. If you're a man, be involved in this. Chip Ingram in a study that they're doing on Thursday nights, all right? It, it, he, he calls it the 50-20 principle. The Genesis 50-20 is, is a story of Joseph. And if you know Joseph's story, God, God was with Joseph, but it sure didn't seem like it. It sure didn't feel like it that Joseph was the youngest and he was kind of the brat. And so his brothers one day, they, they, were, uh, they threw him into a pit. They were gonna kill him. But then they said, ah, let's make some money off of this. His own brothers sold him to be a slave in Egypt. His brothers sold him to slavery, but yet God was with him is what we read over and over again, that when he's a slave in Egypt, Potiphar, his master, he becomes Potiphar's right-hand man, that everything's entrusted to him. And yet Joseph is lied about, is framed for something he didn't do, for something he refused to do that was wrong. And it says the Lord was with Joseph, but Joseph went back to prison. Joseph, you know, was knocked down again. And in prison, the Lord's with him, right? Joseph, rise up. You got to think what's going on. Joseph is forgotten about by people. He's betrayed by people, lied about. It keeps saying the Lord is with him, but it sure didn't feel like it. But then the day came that Joseph was taken from the pit and given his platform. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt, second to Pharaoh. And God uses Joseph to accomplish his divine will, his divine will and to, and to show, to save lives. A famine strikes the land and Joseph's brothers, who by now I'm sure had forgotten all about him, come in looking for food, come to Egypt. And they are there before Joseph and they have no idea it's him. I'm not going to spoil it. You got to read Genesis. But, but Joseph says this. This is Genesis 50, 20. Joseph says this to his brothers. There for sure, Joseph is going to kill him. He says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. And that... The Genesis 50-20 principle is true for all of us. We are going to have attacks. We are going to have days where we get sucker punched, where we get knocked down. There are going to be things that are intended to harm us, to hurt us. But God always intends it for our good. Not that he causes everything, but that God is, is working it for our good eventually. You see, we get confused and in our feelings, our circumstances, we look at how things are going down and down and down. We forget the Lord is with us and we think, what? Why does God hate me? Why is God so mad at me? That wasn't the case with Joseph at all, was it? See, our feelings come and go. If you wanna know how God feels about you, it's on the cross, it's on the cross where he shows his feelings for you that he gave his son, that you could live, that we could live with him forever. See, God's love is constant for us. But the reality is that God's answer to our prayers sometimes is no. Sometimes God's answer is no. 
that we would love for, you know, the moment we give our lives to Jesus and follow him, that life just goes up, 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 right? That's not the case. And that if you, uh, people have been lied to, I think it's well-intentioned that, that if you think following Jesus means it's gonna be a suffering-free life, you got another thing coming. See, don't get me wrong, life is better. Life is better with Jesus. And with Jesus, I'm better at life. That is so true. But we'll hear sometimes, well, Chad, if you just had enough faith, if you just prayed with more faith and asked boldly, then, then, then God would do this. And maybe you've heard it, that if you just had the faith that it's pinned on you, that the problem is you, but I say, that is not, that is not scripture. That is not the way it works every time. God's answer is sometimes no, please hear me out. Don't check out. That when you look, uh, just look at the disciples who followed Jesus, right? That they, they followed Jesus and yet they died martyrs' deaths. John lived a martyr's death and the rest were killed for their faith. It doesn't make sense when you think about Peter and Paul, right? That the church prays for them and sometimes they're delivered from prison, right? God answered the prayer with a yes. But then both of them, history tells us, Paul's beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down. Why does God sometimes answer yes? And then sometimes it's not the answer we seek. Is it just because they didn't have enough faith? I don't believe that. You go to Hebrews 11, where we, we read about the heroes of faith and that, you know, these people, these men and women lived with such faith that they, that their lives are testimonies of what it looks like to live by faith. And we love to, to talk about Abraham and how the, you know, the father of faith, he, in faith, his life was full of suffering though. Well, we love to talk about how, how God used Abraham and how God worked in his life. We love to talk about Noah. We love to talk about how by faith he built the ark, right? We tell these stories to our children and we should. We love to talk about Moses who by faith chose to be rejected by Egypt, by, not to enjoy the treasures of Egypt, but to be mistreated with God's people. They did all of this by faith. We, we, we love this and those are the stories we focus on and the writers of Hebrews, he, he just says, you know, there's so much more I don't have time for, but listen, over and over we read people with faith who, who conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the, the edge of the sword. They refused release. Hold on, hold on. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in sheeps and skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. It wasn't that they didn't have enough faith. I mean, they're in the hall of fame of faith. You know, we want to focus on all the stories where God saves the day, but sometimes God doesn't answer the way we want him to. Will your faith shrink back? Will you allow the bad things, the pain, the suffering 
to be your reason why you walk away? Why you turn your back on God? God's not abandoned us. He's not turned his back on you. No, that's a promise over and over that God is faithful. He says, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm not like you. I'm faithful. No matter what, God never changes. He has not abandoned you. Walking forward in faith means that sometimes we accept God's no and that we trust God's no is going to lead us to grow. You know, a good parent doesn't always say yes to their kid. A good parent will sometimes, you know, say no or not give them the request. You know, because he wants to play on the pavement, you don't let him play in the street, right? You, you, you tell him no. You don't give him the shiny knife on the counter, right? That's not for their good. I, I remember taking our boys to uh, ER. They needed, needed stitches, you know, the blood's got everywhere and, you know, it's gross. And, and, and we get there and the, the boy's scared, you know, my son's scared at the doctor when the doctor comes in. You know, he is terrified. He's never been in a hospital before. And here he is with blood all over him and the doctor's coming to give stitches. And what do you have to do? You, as a parent, have you had to hold one of your children down so the doctor could, could work on him? Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible because the whole time they're terrified. They're, they're screaming, no, no. And you want to say, yeah, let's get away from that mean old doctor, right? But, but no, you know it's for their good. See, we have to trust that if we know how to take care of our children and we are far from perfect, then doesn't our perfect heavenly father know how to take care of his? And that he, when he tells us no, He's looking for our good and he's looking for us to grow. Paul pleaded three times that God would remove the thorn in his flesh. And God's answer was what? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You see, what the times where we're told no are the times we grow the most because we see it's not our power, that we can't do it, that God's power shows up. Jesus is the ultimate example. Hebrews 5, verse 7 says, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience. Whoa. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Jesus was like, became a man and emptied himself that he grew in wisdom, stature and favor among men, that he learned obedience through suffering. That we shouldn't make light of the Lord's discipline. God is working for the good, that he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, the rain on the just and the unjust. When you look at, we have this amazing promise, Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, what is the promise in Romans 8, 28? That God works all things together. Not that all things are good, not that God causes all things, but that in all things, he is able to work for our good. 
that we would become more like Jesus. Our definition of good is sometimes wrong. But Jesus here, notice he says the same thing twice. In verse three and verse five, unless you repent, you will perish. Faith looks towards the future. Faith is certain that God rewards. That when we talk about repentance, I, as a kid I heard it, it's, you know, you're living one way, doing your own thing. To repent is to turn and live for God. Completely agree with that, but there's more to it. That repentance is a change of heart and mind that changes your life. Make sense? That to repent is when you've had a change of heart and a change of mind and your body is going to show it because your actions show it. Hear me out that Jesus says, you know, repent or perish. This isn't the first time Jesus said repent though. You go back, how did John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus' ministry, how did Jesus begin preaching? What was the message that both of them preached? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You see, when you think, really think about it. We know what this world has to offer, and then we read in Revelation 21 about what the new kingdom, what heaven, what paradise is going to be like. They don't even compare. Scripture is very clear that we can't even conceive what God's done for us, what God has in store for us. We can't even understand what it's going to be like, that, that whatever we're going through, whatever suffering or pain or, 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 or trials or hardships you're experiencing now, none of it compares to what God has waiting for us. That when you read that city comes down the new Jerusalem, that God lives among his people, that there's no darkness there, that sin, the curse is reversed and that there's no more sin. There's no more destruction. We have new heavenly bodies. We don't have this battle with the flesh anymore. We don't have this aging body problem. We don't have any of this, that the sickness is gone. Death is gone. Pain is gone. He wipes away the tears from their eyes. And when God wipes away the tears from their eyes, man, I think that, that's clear that he is righting every wrong. Only God can do that. Only God. The world has nothing to offer in comparison. But unless we repent, we're going to perish. We're not going to experience this. You see, my goal, my aim is that living here, I get ready. I'm just passing through. I'm not here very long. That one day I know there's an eternal home waiting. You see, that's exciting. That this isn't it. This isn't everything. It's exciting and I want to live such a way here that I feel at home when I'm there. But some of us are, are living like this is our home, more comfortable here. Ah, think about what it's going to be like to be in his presence. You see, that's, what are you gonna do about it? Well, what are you, we, we've sang, we've read the word, we've, you've listened, we've had this, what are you going to do now? 
What's going to be different? For some of us, we, we need to repent. Now, verse three and five in Luke 13 there says, repent, you will perish. It's the same in our English, but the original language, there's just a slight variation. You see, verse three is a continual repentance, a continual turning to him. And verse five is the, the one time. Some of us in here, maybe you've never repented. You've never turned to Jesus. You've never turned to him and pursued him. If that's you, in a few moments, we're gonna sing a song and there's gonna be people up front and even in the back prayer corner that, that please, please, if you wanna know what it means to live for him, to choose him, pursue, to, to pursue, to choose life, that's what I'm trying to say. We want to be there. They wanna pray with you. That's what they're looking forward to. But I think some of us, or most of us, might be on the continual repentance. What I mean by that is, we take our eyes off of the prize. Instead of running to the Father, instead of looking to Jesus, we've allowed something else to, to capture our attention. We've allowed something else to distract us. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's repentance. Why in the world would you run a race with attached to weights? Why would you carry weights with you during the race? It doesn't make sense. The sin that so easily entangles us, we need to repent. But how do we... Look at verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, we wanna make these big theological statements and, and arguments for how things work and all that. And I, I think we're missing it. Jesus right here gives us that, the picture is him. Don't miss Jesus, repent or perish. The people were missing what God was doing with Jesus right there in front of them. Look, fix your eyes on Jesus. Right now, we're gonna take a moment. We're gonna do what's called communion. If you don't know, this is a way that, the way that Jesus asked his followers to remember. And that there's a piece of bread. It's unleavened bread. There's so much symbolism it goes with the Passover. Quite simply, it's made without yeast. This represents Jesus' body. Yeast represents sin, that it's made without yeast because he lived without sin. 
And that this right here is how we remember that his body was broken for us, that him who knew no sin became sin. Let's see. We also have the cup. It represents his blood that was poured out. Revelation 12 says that we overcome by the blood of the lamb. It's not sinless perfection. We all fall short. His love for us was shown and his blood was poured out that we could be washed white as snow. And that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death and we proclaim his life and resurrection as well. Let's drink. It's amazing when we consider your work, your love, your grace, your mercy, your ability to, to love us despite turning our backs on you. Lord, as we reflect on Jesus' body that was broken, reveal to us anything that needs to be broken in us that we need to turn to you that's not of you that father is distracting is taking our focus off of you lord we thank you for the forgiveness the love that we have no idea or ability to comprehend we pray that your spirit would open our eyes and hearts to see May you be glorified in everything, in all that we do, by our lives. Help us, Father, to choose you, to pursue you, to live for you. We have access to you, and we can ask these requests with confidence only because of Jesus. So it's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all who agree, say amen. overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony the power of their testimony church you you can't have a testimony without a test you can't have a testimony without repentance we are more than conquerors look at how God brings us hope and life through the death of Christ his own son.
It's humbling. He died for us. Will we live for him? Love you, church.